Thank you, everybody, for joining the Seattle Sports Union Podcast. My name is Abraham Deweese. I'm back once again with Richard the Ram Michelson and our very special guest star today, former NBA player and Wazoo Coog, James Donaldson. How are you doing today, James? Hey, I'm good, guys. How's everybody doing over there? Doing fantastic, fantastic. Uh, we are super excited. Uh, NBA just wrapped up its uh, finals, and it's perfect timing to get you on here. Um, it's also Father's Day, so special, uh, special uh, 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 shout out to you, Rich, father of multitudes, apparently. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Abe. Uh, but we'll get to we'll get to the shout outs here in a minute. Um, James, uh, you actually are half British, is what I read. Uh, you, you you were oh. born in England, right? And uh, I, I wouldn't claim that, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> It's what I read on your profile. I thought I'd bring that up. That that was, I mean, I found that interesting. <laughs> no, I was born in the UK because my dad was in the military service, so he was stationed there. Oh, fair but right. I don't, I don't claim being Britain. No. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say you might have been one of the greatest British players of all time, if that's the case. You know. No, um, don't claim it. So it just happened. <laughs> all right. Well then, let's fast forward. Let's fast forward several years where you, where you went from a uh, beautiful, uh, you know, lush countryside to uh, that 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 place that Brian the Soul Man Solak is so proud of. And that's uh, one one Pullman, Washington. Um, you played there for several years, and you actually uh, earned all Pac ten all Pac eight awards. I guess it had been at the time. Um, what th- this question is just for the Soul Man. What was it like playing for George Raveling? Well, I thought it was a great experience, you know, and probably one of the most helpful and instrumental parts of my my basketball career. Uh, of course, I went to WSU to be a student athlete and was able to graduate on time. And, uh, you know, with with that goals firmly in mind, that was my first my first goal I set was to graduate from university. And the second was to see how far this basketball thing could take me. So. Uh, George Ravelin was fantastic to play for, and uh, we, we're still in touch. We're still really good friends. He's a great mentor of mine and um, kind of became a second father figure also while I was at WSU. Well, that's, that's great to hear. What, I'm just curious, what, what did you uh, study when you were at Washington State? I graduated in uh, a degree in sociology and psychology, so that was my majors. Okay. Cool. So that is a double, I guess a double, a double major then. Double major. Yeah. 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 That's fantastic. Uh, So when you were, when you were at Wazoo, um, you're, (laughs) you're a big man on campus. You're kind of a big deal. And then you got selected. um, You got selected by the supersonics in uh, I believe it was 79. Um, So during their championship run, Um, what was the experience like going from big man on campus to, you know, a, a, uh, you know, uh, a rookie, a, a rookie. Yeah. That's the best way to put it. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, such, such is life. You know, we start over many times in our life journey and uh, that's exactly how you do it when you move up uh, different levels of achievement. So from high school, then you go to college, you're the rookie again, you go to the pros, you're a rookie again. Uh, you get out into the real world, you're a rookie again. So those <laughs> things are part of the journey. Uh, but, you know, I always accepted it and always, uh, you know, looked forward to, to it with anticipation as far as uh, a tremendous time for growth and for learning. 
uh, to be mentored by my mentors and people who've been down that journey a little bit further and longer than I have. So uh, for me, that was exactly what it was. I was fortunate to be drafted by the Seattle Supersonics uh, 1979. I joined the team in 1980 after one professional year over in Italy and came back and made the team in 1980. Uh, and I don't think I could have broken in with a better coach or a better team. They were just one year removed from the NBA championship and all the great championship caliber players were still there, of course, uh, with Lenny Wilkins. But, you know, Jack Sigma and John Johnson and Fred Brown, Gus Williams, Lonnie Shelton, all the guys were still there. And they really helped me develop into the NBA player I became. Would you have been playing at the Kingdom at that time, or were they still at the Coliseum? No, we were at the Kingdom. Yes, we were still in the early 80s. I was there from 80 to 83 with the Sonics and then moved on to other teams from there. What was your impression of playing in such a cavernous stadium? Or did it even matter because you had made the top level? Well, you know, I mean, I didn't, I didn't play on the perimeter. So, you know, you'd hear a lot of the shooters would complain about the depth perception and the background of looking up into an empty cavernous place, uh, as opposed to playing in a, a standard NBA arena. Uh, for me, you know, I played in close to the basket, so it didn't really matter to me. Uh, we didn't have the intimacy, the fan intimacy that comes with so many of these arenas nowadays. And, of course, uh, the Coliseum and the Key Arena were much more intimate venues, which is what basketball really should be all about. I think the very first game I went to was actually with you, Rich. Your dad took us to... Yeah. A, a kingdom game. A and kingdom. I just, and I just remember being really confused because that's not what I thought. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah, yeah. I, I, I want to say it was, uh, it, 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 and it was against one of the, the, the more well-known teams like the Celtics or the Lakers or something. So like the whole stadium was open and we were, I mean, we were like two basketball courts away from the action. Yeah. We were in the 300 <laughs> level behind the, yeah. I know. <laughs> Well, they get uh, you know thirty thousand in there for playoff games, especially. Yeah, yeah. So it was a great, I thought it was a great place to play, uh, but again, you know, it didn't have the intimacy of the smaller coliseum and things. Sure. So, um, in I guess in that time, you know, you 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 played with with all these guys. What what was your highlight of of your time with um, with the Seattle SuperSonics? Well, it's hard to say. I mean, you know, I didn't play much my first half of my rookie year and then came into uh, more of the rotation. Uh, Dennis Autry was was the backup center at that time, and Dennis got injured at some point during the season. Mm-hmm. So that's when I kind of stepped into being uh, Jack Sigma's backup. And then on many occasions, starting in the starting lineup, uh, they had us named the Winnebago Wall with myself and Jack Sigma. <laughs> So we closing team, uh, you know, and I just really just love being around the guys. Uh, a couple of my favorite mentors were Fred Brown and, and John Johnson, who really took me under their wings and helped me develop my back to the basket uh, game that I had to have. Uh, helped me to get tougher and stronger and rebound and block shots. So, you know, every day before practice, They'd get there a half hour before. They'd stay a half hour, an hour afterwards with me, just working on the different basketball drills and things. And 
of course, Fred bombing away from, you know, long range. Mm-hmm. Uh, opportunity to, to get rebounds and, and to gauge how the ball is coming off the rim. So that was just wonderful training for me. I, I, have, uh, I have a question. So my, my mom was a huge basketball fan and a big Sonics fan. And, um, you know, Sonics being good with Lenny Wilkins and, and all that, the, the stars on that team. But she, she always talks about like her favorite thing going to a game was to watch Gus Williams play guard because she said, man, he was just little, but he was quick and he go. And her favorite thing is to, to watch him steal the ball off of someone and go down to the other end and lay it up. I'm just wondering, as a as a basketball player, what what is your favorite type of of thing to do? Like, is it to block a shot and start a fast break, or to get an outlet pass out, or like what what is it you you loved that was like the thing for you as a player? Well, those are great aspects of the game that I that I I did well blocking shots, and I think I'm in the, still in the top uh, all time block shot leader list with the Sonics uh, in my three years. Rebounding, of course, uh, the quick outlet passes. But you know, when you when you get above the rim and you dunk the ball on people, uh, that just brings an exhilaration that's un- unmatched. Uh, you just you feel like you're at the height of your powers. You've dominated for that particular moment, and the guys start respecting you. And so, you know, uh, the game is physical, especially back then, much more physical than it is now. Uh, the guys did not back down. And if you back down, well, you might as well pack your bags and get moving on to something, some other career choice, because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you don't have too many opportunities to keep coming back at it. So I learned early not to back down and to, you know, take, take my punishment, you know, get beat up on, but also be able to dish it out as well. That must have, that must have sucked getting uh, put right behind Sigma. Um <laughs> <laughs> when were you ever going to play? I mean, maybe it might've been the best thing because actually I remember you more as a <clears throat> Maverick yeah, than as a Sonic. Um, just at my yeah. age, that, that's when I started watching. And um, yeah, I, it was kind of funny as I was reviewing, uh, uh, you know, YouTube clips of you and whatnot is uh, you had this little baby hook shot. Um, yeah. And you just mentioned uh, that you learned a lot from uh, some of the former Sonics. Did that, did that come into your, did you learn that in your pro career? Or have you always had, or did you always have that? No, I, I did learn it in a pro career. You know, uh, with my size and strength, I was 7'2", about 275, 280. So I was a big, big guy uh, that I could get those guys on my back or on my hip and easily hook the ball over them or turn and shoot a nice little jump shot. So those are my two favorite moves, uh, you know, kind of a little fadeaway jump shot to the, to the baseline or coming across the middle. Uh, from the box and uh, with a with a left-handed hook shot. I was left-handed. So left-handed hook shots were, were great. Uh, but as I mentioned, you know, being able to go up and above guys and dunk the ball on top of them. Uh, you know, one year I led the league in field goal percentage uh, because I was dunking everything in sight and came in around 63% or something for the whole year. So uh, that that's sufficient big, big man play. Yeah. I was going to say, was that with the Mavericks that you had that that great year? Was that the, your All Star year? No, that was actually with the Clippers before I got to the Mavericks. Oh, okay, yeah. So yeah. I, you know, I used my three years with Seattle to really develop into an NBA player. I, I did start playing a lot more uh, my second year and third year with Seattle. Uh, actually, in the starting lineup at times with Sigma moving over to power forward. Um, 
but, you know, when I got to the San Diego Clippers at the time, we played one year in San Diego, then the team moved to Los Angeles for my second and third year. That's when I really became a full-time, bona fide NBA player, uh, starting just about every game, playing 35, 40 minutes a night, uh, and really, you know, putting a mark on, on my game and learning the NBA game as well. Fantastic. And part of that, it sounds like, was just getting the opportunity to get on the court. Yes, you need it. You have to. I mean, which is one reason after graduation from Washington State, I went over to Italy for a year. The Sonics had just won the NBA championship. Uh, as they say, there was no room at the end, so they weren't going <laughs> to gobble up somebody's uh, guaranteed contract with somebody like me. So I, I went to Italy where I could play 40 minutes a night and get double-figure points, double-figure rebounds, continue working on my game uh, because, you know, I was still kind of raw coming out of WSU uh, with great potential upside. But we just didn't know how, how we could tap into that. If I would have came to the Sonics uh, as a draft pick, I most likely probably would have gotten cut at some point and then move on to another team and bounce around before you bounce out of the league without really getting a chance to play. In Italy, I got a chance to play, and that's why we invested that first year of my professional career over in the Italian leagues. Right on. You mentioned the physicality of your play. That's one thing that I've noticed, you know, as we're watching the uh, playoffs here uh, and the championship just conclude. Boy, I just do remember that back in those days, uh, you'd have to take an elbow in the in the in the – in the back and just deal with it. <laughs> Nowadays, I, everybody just kind of falls down and yeah, looks, yes, for the, yes. looks for the lawyer to, to do the lawsuit, you know? Yeah. That's <laughs> the difference in the game. Now, you know, we were much, much more physical and, and guys knew if they drew drove to the basket, they were going to get clobbered and put down through the floorboard uh, and hopefully didn't get hurt. Uh, so, you know, they challenged you, but they paid the price. And, uh, you know, I remember very, very few guys ever actually dunking the ball on me because I would go up and challenge it. And if I couldn't get the ball, I would, you know, kind of put a form into their, their chest and put them <laughs> on the ground. Uh, you can't do that anymore because now with all the te- technical fouls and flagrant fouls and sure. things, it's just ridiculous. But uh, those were the big, those were the great days in the NBA, the 80s and 90s. Uh, playing against some of the all-time greats, uh, you know, Abdul-Jabbar, Moses Malone, Artis Gilmore, uh, Bob Lanier, uh, you know, you name it. We we went against them every single night. There was a big man uh, of all-star caliber you had to go against. So if those... Gonna, oh, go ahead, Rich. I, I, let me jump in on that on that topic. Like, um, you know... Yeah, growing up watching the game, you know, my you know, my my dad explained, you know, the the most important player on the on the court is the center because they're big and they can dominate the you know the center of the floor. And if you want to get close enough to have a decent shot, you're gonna have to do something about that center. And you know, um that's and obviously that's up. changed. That's kind of changed, hasn't it? But like yeah. I I'm just curious if you think like what you have all these great centers for so long and then it's just become this desert and I I'm just kind of baffled about it. You know, it's, it's been a generation since we've had more than a handful of really good, um, you know, guys in the, uh, in the five, in the five spot. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think with the advent of the three point shot, 
it, it did come in in the mid 80s. Uh, so I was around when it first started up. But back then, it, the shot was a much more strategic shot. You'd use it coming out of a timeout. You'd use it as a special play at the end of the game. Teams might have shot three or four or five a game, and that was it. Uh, now guys are shooting, you know, three or four or five and a quarter and end up with 20 attempts in the game. Uh, and that, that just was unheard of back then. So with that kind of game, you know, the floor spread pretty wide. Uh, there was no longer the driving and dunking the ball. It used to be now you drive and kick it out to a three-point shooter. And so the big man wasn't really utilized or needed as much as it was back then. A question for you. Going back one one question. <clears throat> you mentioned uh, all the greats that you that you played against, you know, your Jabars and uh, whatnot. Um, I would like you to name one guy that you had his number and then name another who – just was a pain to try to defend. <laughs> wow. Uh, that's hard to say. I mean, you know, I always seem to play well against uh, the Trailblazers down in Portland. Uh, they had a series of centers coming through that really could never could handle me. Uh, I'm thinking of Kevin Duckworth and Steve Johnson and uh, oh, uh, Denver Nuggets the same way with Danny Shays and, and, uh, Wayne Cooper, they used to just, they used to cringe when they saw me coming through because <laughs> I go for 20 rebounds those games and dunking the ball 20 points. Uh, and there was nothing they could do. They were, they were a little bit smaller than me, but, uh, you know, I played with such physicality, they just couldn't handle it. Uh, but other, other teams, you know, uh, you know, most other teams I was uh, pretty good against. Phoenix, Phoenix Suns were always a small, undersized team with uh, Alvin Adams and Mark West and those guys. So those kind of teams, those were easier, much easier for me to dominate inside. But playing against those kind of players, uh, you know, the one that just gave me fits not time and time again uh, was probably Moses Malone, uh, who was just a whirlwind dervish of energy and, and nonstop action and movement. Uh, a little smaller than me, a little, uh, a little quicker, of course. And just nonstop, he was going at it, uh, throwing the ball off the backboard, go get to the offensive rebound. Uh, <laughs> he'll do that three or four times on a possession. Didn't care about his shooting percentage, but he would just wear you out with those kind of things. Um, and just when, the, just when Moses was slowing down a little bit in his career, along came Akeem Olajuwon, who was very similar, but much more polished in a new and improved version of Moses. Uh, those were my, my two toughest uh, competitors to play against throughout my career. But, you know, I I always say the most unstoppable was Abdul-Jabbar. There's absolutely nothing you can do with that sky hook. And if he wanted to go for 50 points, he could easily, as long as he got the ball from his guard, Magic Johnson. Uh, But, you know, Kareem didn't need to score 50 every night, but he was so efficient with that sky hook. And no matter how high you tried to jump to block the thing, you just couldn't get to it. And by the time you come back down to the floor, you know, your feet touch the ground again, you look over your shoulder and the ball's just nestling through the net again, <laughs> time and time again. So that, that was playing against Kareem. He wasn't the most physical guy, but he was the most efficient. Nice. I was going to say, I, I, you know, I, I remember saying like, well, why doesn't anyone come from behind and steal the ball when he starts to do his skyhook? And, <laughs> well, and, and, and the answer was always because he's too good. <laughs> 
Or, yes. he, or he blows right by you because you're yeah. behind him. Yeah. Yeah. You know, well, he had a very high basketball IQ. So he, he could, he would try to bait you in to try to double him and triple him. And then, you know, he'll find his wide open guys. Uh, so you don't want to do that too often. Once or twice, you know, a quarter maybe or a half. Uh, but he'll pick you apart pretty quickly. So it was best just to try to, you know, a big guy like me, I could body him and be physical with him and push him out a, a couple feet further. But still, it was virtually impossible to stop that shot. Nice. Uh, in the 80s, I felt like there was a a change in basketball, not from a technical standpoint, but from a popularity standpoint. Mm. And you were there. And we saw in the ratings, and the NBA go from – uh, a lot of people forget this, but the Supersonics 79 uh, championship, you couldn't even yeah. get on network TV. <laughs> um, yeah. And then then I think it blew all the way up to uh, number two in popularity next to the NFL by the end of the, by the, end of the 80s. Yeah. Did, did you feel that at the time or is that something that we just look at in hindsight? No, no. We, we knew that the game was getting much more popular. Uh, especially with the, uh, the incoming class of Magic Johnson and Larry Bird. Uh, those two really were able to revolutionize the game, make it so much more popular than it ever had been before. It kind of came out of the dark ages uh, in the 70s, where you had both the ABA and the NBA, and the ABA was hardly ever seen. Uh, but Dr. J came on the scene in the late 70s, early 80s, and he brought a great deal of popularity to him. But I think when Magic and Bird came on board and the CBS network started covering the games in prime time and the Lakers and the Celtics were going at it almost every championship series throughout the 80s, um, that really brought the popularity to all-time highs uh, where everybody knew so many of the players as household names at that point, Magic, Bird, Kareem, uh, and that that went all the way until the early nineties when Michael Jordan took over. So uh, those couple of decades were the best of NBA basketball. It's so funny. And I get in arguments about this all the time because that, that decade also was the lowest, <laughs> lowest scoring decade as well. <laughs> like yeah. unless you were the nuggets. Um, uh, yeah. yeah. Teams were not, they were not scoring 110 points per game. Um, so I, I've never really liked this argument that you got to get scoring up to make the NBA more fun. Like, I, don't yeah. think that's, I don't think that's true. I don't think so either. I, you know, I, I think people want to see a good game. I think they want to see a fundamentally sound game. Uh, of course, they want the guys to have fun and everything, and that's what Magic Johnson brought in the game. Um, but, you know, we, we played defense. It was a defensive struggle battle, especially with teams like, uh, you know, Detroit and uh, the New York Knicks, uh, team, big big physical teams that come at you very physically. Um but, you know, the great offensive players figure out a way to get around it and score. Scoring was probably down uh, five or six points a game. Uh, but, you know, every once in a while you get a team that wins, you know, 98, uh, 89 or so. Uh, and that's not good for ratings. So you keep it up in the triple digits. It's good for everybody. Do you consider yourself more of a former Supersonic or a former Maverick or a former Clipper? Uh, is there one team that you follow uh, post NBA? Well, you know, since the Sonics left in 2009, oh, yeah. left a big void in me. And it, uh, <laughs> no, I'm still a former Sonic. There's not much to hang my hat on because we don't have a team anymore. Uh, 
and the few guys that are still around the area, you know, we're not very visible in the community and doing all the things we used to do when the Sonics were here. So, you know, but the, but my seven years with the Mavericks, this was the apex of my career where I played the very best basketball, where I had some very, very good teams I played on, where I made the all-star team as well. Uh, those were, you know, times I'll never, ever forget. And, um, you know, but, but Dallas is a long way from Seattle and Seattle is still where I live. So <laughs> I, I have a question for you about, I guess, just, you know, we've, we've kind of come here towards the end of your career. Um, and you know, what, you know, is it, is it that the, you know, you said there's a few guys from the Sonics that still live in the area, but you don't really get together and do anything, right? It's right. Because there's no, there's no team, there's no tent pole, right? There's no organization to to kind of revolve around and, and bring things in and, and do that history, right? Like that 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 legacy making that that you have with a professional team, even if they stink like the Mariners have the last twenty years, right? Yeah, yeah, that's that's exactly right. I mean. You know, the WNBA is fine. The Seattle Storm is fine and everything, but that's women's basketball. It's not NBA basketball. Um, and so there's really not a big demand for us to do anything in the community. There's really no commercial opportunities, sponsorship opportunities, uh, uh, autograph signing sessions. There's really nothing that we can really get going on a regular, consistent basis. Um you know, there is some talk of uh, the NBA coming back to Seattle eventually. Um, I think it's, it'll be true in, you know, two, three, four, five years, still down the road a little bit. Uh, and at that point, I think you'll see more of the guys being involved in the community and being asked to do things in the community. I, I used to love when I was a Sonic uh, going out to, you know, the various schools, elementary, middle schools all over Seattle. Uh, we had a thing called the uh, the Pepsi Hot Shots over at uh, over at the Safeway stores. Matter of fact, I just found an old photo. I was scanning into my computer, uh, and this this is me with a bunch of kids at at the Safeway Pepsi Hot Shot. So you know, those are things that we could do, and we we used to do on a regular basis. Um, so we have to wait till a team comes back. And hopefully we'll be asked to be very involved with the community setting. I was, I was of the opinion that there was no way in, in hell that the Sonics would leave Seattle. I thought, uh, I thought somebody was going to put a stop to this. Um, how are you, how are you when the whole thing went down? Were you pessimistic, optimistic or, well, I, I was somewhat optimistic. Uh, I had a chance to talk with Clay Bennett, the owner of the Oklahoma City team. I had a chance to talk with Howard Schultz. Uh, and they were, both were trying to convince us all and convey that the team was going to stay in Seattle. But sitting up there the last couple of years, the Sonics were in town, even with Clay Bennett on a couple of occasions, seeing the arena only half field. Uh, a very bad product on the floor. The team wasn't winning. There was no excitement or enthusiasm. And then there was no political will amongst our elected officials to to do something, to hang on to the team. Uh, I, I ran for the office of mayor back in 2009 in Seattle. This is the year the Sonics left. Uh, so I was very involved with all the political folks around town. And there just was no political will. They just didn't. 
didn't see, didn't understand the economic value that a team like the Sonics have to the city of Seattle. It's not just the it's not just the economic value. There's a there's a quote that's it's, that's burned and in, etched into my memory from a Nick Licata city councilman where he stated yeah. there's no there's no cultural value to basketball. Yeah. And that I I that made me so angry that I I wanted to drive down to City Hall and yeah. punch him in the face cuz I, I thought that was really rude and I think it's really ignorant. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's, yeah. Yeah. The economic value, you're right. But I mean, there's, there's a, uh, there is a cultural value. Yeah. I mean, like pick up basketball in, especially in a lot of the neighborhoods in Seattle and Green obviously Lake, around, yeah. I mean, we've, we've produced these amazing, you know, players, but not just that, but it's like a, it's the heart of a, of, of neighborhoods. It's the basketball courts, you know, across the street from Garfield high school and down in Rainier beach across the street from, you know, Rainier high school. Um, yeah, I, I don't, is the basketball hoop at your house, rich? Where I mean, oh yeah, not a, not a great cultural value, but um, yeah. certainly fun with uh, weird trick shots. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, and if I can recall, I think Nick Licata, and I was I was uh, there with Nick, uh, you know, as a political candidate myself. Uh, I, I, if I can recall, I think his I think his comment was economic value. I don't think it was cultural. He used the word cultural, and that that really, it, I, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. And I know, and I know he walked it back. He walked it back on sports radio, but I, it, it's it's uh, he still said it, and it's still impact it still had an impact on me well one thing about seattle i mean we are so blessed to have uh every professional team imaginable except the nba uh you know with uh, baseball and 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 uh, women's basketball and football and uh, hockey uh the sounders you know you name it we've got it and uh I, I just guess that they rolled the dice and didn't feel like our fan base would miss the Sonics that much if they left. And so they left without much of a fight. Well, I mean, I'll speak as, as, as Joe, Joe fan. I mean, I've been to playoff games. I've been to dreary regular season games. I've wa- I mean, for, for a, a long time, for about 15 years, if I wanted to watch sports, what I really wanted to watch was the Sonics because the Sonics were the only good team in Seattle at yeah. the professional level. <laughs> yeah. um, and that's, it's what we hung our hat on as Seattleites was that the Sonics were always going to be good and competitive for a long, long time. And yeah. um, I'll, I'll be honest. I just, I'm just not interested in the NBA the same way as, as I was when I was, you know, 20 years ago before the Sonics yeah. left. Um because I don't have a, a team and, you know, I moved here to, to Utah and, and I mean, like the jazz are local, but I don't love the jazz. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they're not in my heart. I mean, that, that, come on. I mean, these are, these are the jazz are the teams that, you know, I hated growing up. I can't possibly turn that around to love. So, I mean, um, and, and you've got this whole corner of, of, of the, of North America, right. That has no team. Right. So, um, well, except for Portland. Well, I'm not watching Portland. That's I'm not watching happen. Portland. <laughs> Will not happen. It's never going to happen. Uh, but no, I mean, in the, in the 80s, you know, and this is, a, you know, the proliferation of uh, NBA players, uh, you know, on TV. And 
uh, in advertisements and whatnot. And, mm-hmm. uh, when, you know, when I'm hanging out with uh, rich who lived across the street from me, yeah, we're, we're out there. Uh, you know, he's Peyton, I'm Sean Kemp and you know, yeah. uh, that kind of stuff. And it, it just, uh, I didn't, we, we didn't do that with the Mariners. I mean, uh, up uh, until uh, 95, they were, they were a nothing team, you know, and much, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, up recently, so uh, you're you're in this weight class now, if nothing else. <laughs> He's a big guy. He's a big, big guy now. <laughs> well, um, I was gonna say that uh, you know, growing up, I remember they had the most the, the Sonic, whoever the mar- marketing team for the Sonics was, like the most clever um, yeah. folks. And they they, I remember this one. It was really iconic. It was one of uh, Sam Perkins, your former former teammate from the Mavericks t- days. Sure. He got traded to the Sonics, and man, what a what a what a great guy! What a what a great find! And they had one of him like dressed up as like Doctor Octopus or something like that, with like eight arms, all shooting threes. <laughs> it was it was amusing. It was hilarious. There was you know like something going on. I don't remember what the tie-in was, but it was it was clever marketing. And, yeah. uh, and there were another billboards all over town, and you know it was on sides of buses and stuff. And um, oh, yeah. So anyway, James, you're really good, really good art made too. like back in the day, like, uh, street art, uh, that was, that was basketball oriented and Sonics oriented. So, yeah, well, the fans have proven that we, we will support NBA basketball, Mm -hmm. uh, decent, a decent product on the court. Uh, I think they purposely stripped it down the last two or three years. Uh, the fans didn't come out. I was still going most of the time, but, uh, it was really sad. And, um, no, I remember back in the early 80s when I was playing, when the Sonic Channel started up, you know, a little paid-for-TV package that you can buy all the Sonic games. And so, oh, yeah, yeah we, we were the toast of the town. The, the Seahawks weren't that good. The Mariners weren't good. Uh, there was no WNBA. There was no Sounders. Uh, so we were really the toast of the town for a lot of years. A question, question for you. One of the main reasons why uh, the Sonics left was the arena, was the um... – key bank arena uh as a former player and then also as a fan uh were were those were those legitimate reasons was that a legitimate reason well when you consider what oklahoma city rolled out a brand new arena a brand new practice facility red carpet treatment from start to finish uh they welcomed that team that's the only game in town in oklahoma city of course kind of like portland uh that's what they left for. And we just weren't going to do it. Now, this was back during, we were just coming out of the Great Recession, 2007, 2008, 2009. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mariners had gone to Olympia with hat in hand for public funding. The Seahawks went and got public funding. The Sonics were third in line to ask for public funding. Howard Schultz, all people who owns all the Starbucks, asking for public funding. <laughs> they were turned down. Uh, our legislature in Olympia just would not do it. Uh, the city, of course, the county would not put any money out. And that gave Howard a reason to say, well, I'm selling the team off uh, to an outside investor, not a local investor, because I think local investors knew the political landscape, that they weren't going to get much help publicly funding. So they sold it to somebody outside who in Oklahoma City put all that public funding into it going to say the the other thing is that the they had just renovated uh key arena it was like yeah. a two-year project they played the sonics played in, in tacoma for two years i think 
Right. And they like when they unveiled the new stadium, it was, you know, state of the art, everything. And, you know, 10 years later, it was, <laughs> I remember uh, Clay Thompson and Howard Schultz talking about how bad the arena was. And I was just like, what? So maybe it wasn't that state of the art then. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, who knows? In retrospect. I mean, it, well, it, you, you look at, you, you know, it comes down to, you know, the amenities and facilities that we provide. Uh, you look at the standard NBA arena now, and it's about 750,000 square feet footprints. Oh, wow. uh, Key Arena, the new remodeled Coliseum, mm-hmm. is only about 250,000 square feet footprint. So all those amenities that they want to they want to plug in, the concession stands, the restaurants, the gift shops, you can't do that at this at this Key Arena remodel that we have. Uh, so I still hear that the NBA is not totally thrilled with this remodel. Um, maybe uh, Chris Hansen will show up again and go ahead and build his arena down in Soto, like he was thinking about. Uh, and that'll be an NBA standard arena, 750,000 square foot footprint, which is what the NBA is looking for. It's a, uh, Las, Las Vegas is building one right now. They're not going to use the T-Mobile arena? They're, uh, no, no, they're building their own NBA arena in Las Vegas. Okay. Interesting. Uh, it's that silly roof, though, isn't it? That stupid red roof that is supposed to be a historical yeah. landmark. I know. <laughs> that, that's what's stopping you, right? From being yeah. bigger. Yeah. Yeah. They want, to, they want to preserve that. They should just put it in a museum somewhere and say, hey. <laughs> <laughs> but as you guys know how it is up on Queen Anne, there's, there's, it's so, such a tight, congested part. Uh, oh, yeah. It's a, terrible, it's a terrible place for anything. Like, yes. It, it it's it I, I was uh obviously I don't live in Seattle anymore, but I'm just like having all the stadiums in one section of town yeah. makes like perfect sense. Have it just a stadium district, you know, pull all the transportation, you know, have it all come to like one big transit center, you know, you can do all sorts of fun stuff there. You could you know the light rail goes there and both, yeah, I mean both just every, everything could go to right Soto. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, Queen Anne does not. I mean, and you know how the Mercer mess is. It's got the worst. It's like the worst thing ever. I I, I used to have to go to Seattle Center on a a super regular basis, and it was just horrible. Yeah, yeah. Well, it hadn't gotten any better. And and again, I I ran for the office of mayor last year in Seattle. And uh, so I'm, I'm really involved with all the political stuff that's going on. Uh, and they just don't want to make it any easier to get around. But, I, yeah. yeah. I do have some questions on that. I, I, since you brought it up, um, you've been, you've been running for mayor. I, I, what, what's, what's been your uh, impetus? What's been your platform that, uh, that you want to see maybe changed in the city? Well, you know, I'm, I'm a, a former small business owner. I had my own physical therapy business for about 30 years and, multiple locations, uh, Seattle, Muckleteal, Mill Creek, uh, Tacoma, Kirkland. We were all over the place with that. And uh, so I know how to, how to run business. I know how a business uh, environment needs to be. Seattle's not very business friendly, especially for small businesses trying to make a go of it. And we had a business in Seattle for about five years. Um, the other things I'm running on typically are, you know, the homeless situation, which has gotten totally out of hand. Um, you know, the traffic and congestion, 
safety and crime. Uh, you know, I'm pro-police, I'm pro-business. I want to get our police staff back up to full staffing again, full funding. Uh, those things don't go really well in Seattle, though. So my, my politics, even though they were very commonsensical, uh, just weren't very welcomed because there's so many special interest groups that prevent things from happening. And we've got a crazy city council down there now that pretty much runs and undermines and undermines everything the mayor is trying to do and the uh, city attorney. So that's just the way we are. Uh, what have you, what have your thoughts been about Bruce Harrell for the last six, six months? Uh, Bruce isn't going to be a, a, a big game changer. He's not going to do any paradigm shifts. Uh, he's going to nibble at the edges a little bit. He's going to say all the right things and, you know, and, and just not really try to stir up any controversy, but he's not going to get anything done. Uh, he, you know, 12 years on the city council himself. Uh, so he's kind of in bed with them and they're in bed with him. And, uh, you know, he's got that mindset. He's got that value set of, uh, you know, continuing. You know, we put, we put our streets in downtown Seattle on all these, these restricted roads and road diets, they call them. They narrow it down to one lane. Uh, so trying to force people out of their cars or trying to force people into public transportation and bicycles. Well, bikes are good in Seattle for about three months a year. The rest of the time. <laughs> <laughs> but we spend an exorbitant amount on bike trails and bike paths and, and, and all these other crazy things because the, the bicycle lobbyists, the bicycle set, uh, special interests are such a powerful group. So we got to listen to them. So that's what Bruce has to deal with. I don't see anything changing, which is one of the reasons I, I, I moved outside of Seattle a little bit, even though I still get back to Seattle once a week. Uh, I don't need to be living in the craziness that, that as it has become. <laughs> so um, have you, are you still running your uh, physical therapy business? No, we closed that down in 2018. Okay. Uh, for the pandemic, luckily, uh, I think, because I don't know if it would have survived the pandemic. Uh, and uh, this is after uh, some real serious health issues I had. Oh, oh okay. Uh, starting up in 2015, I just was sidelined for two or three years and just couldn't really focus and put my attention into the business anymore. So I ended up closing it down in 2018. If you don't mind me asking, how did you, how did you get into that business? Well, when I was playing with the Mavericks, um, you know, I had a real serious knee injury. I want to say... Uh, 1989, uh, after my all-star year, uh, a ruptured patella tendon. So I was sidelined for a good six months going to physical therapy every day in Dallas and just being put back together again, learning how the body works. And, you know, with a ruptured patella tendon, uh, this is the big tendon in front of your knee. You need for cutting and jumping and pushing and basketball, especially, uh, it was really, uh, the prognosis wasn't good if I was going to recover from this. Uh, and so all of that time in physical therapy, I, I had a kind of a light bulb moment, I call it. And I say, wow, I'm only 32 years old at the time. If I can't come back, what do I want to do with my life now? I mean, I had my sociology, psychology degrees and things, but, you know, I wanted to get into business. I wanted to set up a physical therapy clinic, very similar to what I was going through in Dallas to be able to give back and serve people. And, you know, and ma on many occasions, I rolled up my pant leg to show our patients, hey, I, I, what you're going through, you can make it through as well. 
So nice. that's that's how I got into physical therapy. And, I, and I'm so glad I did. I never became a therapist. I never went to physical therapy school, but I did all my prerequisites over at your alma mater, UW. Every, every off season, I was taking summer classes, going to uh, knocking out my prerequisites. Very cool. Very cool. I had never thought about that, that there is a psychology aspect of it, as well as the, the hard science of, you know, rehab, but there's a, a you, you, it sounds like you help people get their minds straight as yeah. to what they need to do to, to, to come back. Absolutely. You know, people look at us professional athletes and just look at the end product and they don't realize all the work that goes into it. Uh, you know, we, we were the only physical therapy uh, business in the state of Washington that actually had a mental health therapist on board as well. Oh, cool. mm. A lot of times you get a traumatic injury and you're just not the same mental health therapy comes in handy for you and the family as well. Did you notice a lot of that in, uh, you know, on the teams that you played for or, uh, or was the eighties kind of a pre, uh, what's the right word for it? Did, did they help people with any mental health issues? What I'm trying to say when you were, when you were, no, not at all. Not at all. That was not talked about. Wasn't spoken about, uh, you know, they had uh, substance abuse uh, clinics and counselors for you to work with if you had that kind of issue. It was always kept pretty hush-hush. Uh, but, you know, this is the world I'm into now, mental health awareness, suicide prevention. And, uh, you know, a couple of years ago in the NBA, when Kevin Love and DeMar DeRozan came out, spoke about their mental anxieties, uh, that's when the NBA finally started taking notice. They still haven't done much with it. A lot of talk and no action so far, but I'm trying to get plugged into the mental health work that they're doing so I could really be there and help the guys as well. That's awesome. That That's something that, uh, you know, I would think if I were an owner of a franchise, uh, yeah. I would want to take care of the mental health because I put a lot of money into the salary yeah. for that person. Um, yeah. You think that that would benefit them to. Right. Well, and especially nowadays, I mean, you know, back when I was playing, guys would just suck it up and, you know, tough it out. And, you know, we didn't talk about mental health issues and things like that. Nowadays, it's much more uh, okay to talk about it. Uh, so athletes talk about it, entertainers talk about it. Uh, and you, you need to get them help when they are crying out for help. And so that's what I'm glad to see. I would love to work with the NBA directly and be a, a behavior health counselor that the guys could call me up at one, two in the morning if they need to, and we can just talk to them and work with them and really reassure them that everything's going to be okay. Um, I'm curious what, you know, you, you moved around quite a bit throughout your career, especially at the tail end, you went on a quite the European tour. Yeah. <laughs> what, what is it that, that made Seattle your home? I mean, you, you grew up in Southern or sorry, in, uh, in Sacramento, in California. What, what, why is, why is Seattle home versus uh, the golden state or someplace else? Well, I, I think one, I wanted to get away from California. So I was like most, <laughs> most high school kids, you know, you get away and you yeah. and you go. Uh, but I think, I think the main reason was uh, when I joined the Sonics, uh, so many of my friends from WSU were from the west side of the state, from the Seattle area, Tacoma. And they all migrated back to the area. And I happened to start my career up here as well. 
And so it was just a natural place to be with so many personal friends from college, uh, all starting out our respective careers together. Uh, Seattle became home. I, I bought my home in 1981, uh, joined the Sonics in 1980. I, I kept a home for 40 years in the same place. And even though I'd go off and join other teams for eight, nine months a year, I'd come back every summer and spend four, four months or so here in Seattle. Uh, really re-engaging with the community and being part of everything going on. Um, if you don't, if you don't mind me asking, what part of town did you live in? I lived in the Magnolia area, Magnolia. So I had a nice, nice place up there for forty years. Very cool. Speaking of, speaking of summer, when's it going to start, James? When, when do we get to have summer? <laughs> I'm staring out my window, and this is I'm uh, done with it. <laughs> really, really taking this time getting there this year. <laughs> Uh, you know, on this side of the mountains, it's, so we got blue skies over here today, but you never know. So, <laughs> yeah, what, uh, we, we got a few minutes left here. I just wanted to find out what kind of projects are you working on right now? Well, you know, uh, as I mentioned, I had some serious medical issues uh, back in 2015, uh, four major surgeries uh, <laughs> in five years. So that really put me flat on my back and sidelined me. Uh my whole world went upside down. You know, I ended up losing my business. Uh, uh, you know, I was married at the time. My wife uh, walked out on the marriage and my mother passed away. Um, all my MBA savings of hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, just went down the drain as I was trying to save my business and keep it going as long as I could. I ended up losing my home. Uh, you know, I filed for bankruptcy, foreclosure, Everything that could go wrong went wrong. And it put me into this deep spiral of depression, anxiety, suicidal ideations, uh, all through 2018. So for 12 months of just pure hell and misery, I was in a deep, deep, dark place. And, um, you know, I finally worked my way through all of that with my medical professionals and a good good group of uh, close, intimate friends who, who had known me for 30, 40 years. A couple of my old coaches, you know, Lenny Wilkins and George Raveling were right there for me. Oh, nice. Uh, and, you know, when I finally worked my way through that, the darkness started lifting a little bit. I, I was able to regain my footing a little bit and rediscover a purpose for still being here because I was right on the verge of throwing it all away. And that was starting up my own nonprofit foundation called Your Gift of Life Foundation. Um, you can find it at yourgiftoflife.org. And it's all about uh, mental health and suicide prevention. And it gives me a platform to get out and speak to young people, especially middle school, high school kids. Um, You know, I speak around the country, uh, especially pre-pandemic, and hopefully this coming fall, I'll hit the road again and get out there and start doing a lot of speaking engagements. Uh, I wrote a book about my my journey of that darkness and with the helpful tips and strategies of how everyone can make it through that deep, dark place called Celebrating Your Gift of Life, uh, which you can find at celebratingyourgiftoflife.com. Uh, but it's also available on all the Amazon and uh, online retailers as well. You ordered for me at celebratingyourgiftoflife.com. I personally signed a nice little inscription in there for you because mm-hmm. the order comes comes to the home office here and I ship them out to you. So, um, you know, so that's the work I'm doing now. I'm very, very involved with being that voice and that advocate for mental health awareness, suicide prevention. 
Uh, I'm on the NAMI board in Seattle. NAMI is the National Alliance for Mental Illness. Uh, I've joined the Kitty Tass County Board of Health out here. Uh, I'm joining Sound Mental Health here soon on their board. So I'm very involved with mental health awareness, especially for our young people. Uh, you know, before the pandemic, I was going around speaking to a lot of schools and, uh, you know, there'd be an assembly of three or four or 500 kids and invariably at the end of every talk and, and uh, assembly, there'd be three or four kids that would come up and pull me aside individually and tell me that they're suicidal right now. And they don't know how they're going to make it through the day. These are 12 year old, 13 year old, 14 year old kids. And it's so sad to see this. Um, so we help them. I help them as much, much as I can. And that's what I've really devoted this whole next chapter of my life to is, uh, is working with mental health and suicide prevention. What's what? Th- this has always been a difficult one. What would a person look for? Uh, sometimes people uh, are going through depression, um, but they don't show it. Um, yeah. Are there clues? Are there you know uh, things that people tend to say that uh, or act on that you can see if somebody's struggling? Yeah, there are some telltale signs that you have to be aware of. Um, you know, when a person is just kind of lifeless, you know, they've lost that luster of life and they just don't seem happy. They seem down and depressed. Um, they're not saying anything. They're not going to tell you about it. So that's a good time to kind of saddle up next to somebody and just say, hey, uh, is there something you're going through or something I can help you with? Um, you know, a person who's who's talking about hurting themselves, uh, you know, slashing their, slashing their forearms, slashing their body, uh, cutting, cutting their bodies, uh, just in a way to try to divert the pain that they're going through. Um, erratic behavior, especially for us men, you know, uh, men are notorious for not asking for the help that we need. And so uh, we get into things like substance abuse and alcohol abuse and, and gambling addictions, uh, promiscuity. We, we break up our families and we don't even talk to our own spouse. So I'm trying to get men to be okay with talking about these things as well. Uh, so there's a lot of things that you can keep an eye open for. And when you see somebody exhibiting those kind of behaviors, just just have a talk with them. And, and more, more importantly, just be a listening ear. Uh, because many times they're not going to talk very much until they feel they're in a place of comfort and security and they can trust you, uh, that they'll finally open up and let you know what's going on. So that's what I encourage everybody to do. Well, now what about uh, from the other end of it? If you are someone who has anxiety or depression or uh, suicidal thoughts, what, what, what advice could you give? Yeah, well, you know, the first thing is to reach out for your medical professional, your, your family doctor, physician. Uh, let them diagnose exactly what it is you're going through. That, that's how I found out what I was going through. I, I, after several sleepless nights, uh, waking up at one in the morning, two in the morning, couldn't get back to sleep. My mind's racing on one, how to save my business, two, how to exit this world were the only two thoughts I had. And that went on for a good week or so. So I called my doctor and I just, I thought he was just prescribed me a couple of sleeping pills and help me get to sleep. But after uh, talking to him and letting him know what I'd gone through, what I'm going through, he said, wow, James, you are, 
you're suffering from anxiety, depression, suicidal ideations. Uh, let's get you some help. So he prescribed some prescription medication that helped out for six months or so. And also a behavior health counselor, uh, someone I could talk to a couple of times a week for as long as I needed to. And then I myself brought, brought together my, my close little intimate circle of friends with uh, Coach Wilkins, Coach Raveling, and a couple of other uh, longtime business friends of mine who I, I asked them if I could give them a call at two in the morning if I needed to. And all of them to a person put their hand up and say, yes, put me on your speed dial. Give, get, call me. And then I asked them to check in on me once or twice a week as well. And they all did that for months and months on end working through 2018. Wow. That's awesome. You're, you're seven foot two and uh, a massive guy, but I think this is the strongest element to use uh, what you've endured in the last couple of years. And um, I, I, I'm amazed. I wish, I wish we had started the interview with this, to be honest. Um, I, I, I love your sports career. Uh, and I enjoy talking to you about that. I would like to have you back at some point to talk about this. If if you're interested, um, I know Solek just, Brian Solek just sent me a message that he went and got your book. Uh, Solek uh, also, <laughs> also put his, uh, put his, uh, on your, on Twitter. Can you, uh, proliferate his, his book and, uh, uh get his website out there, please. Yeah, get the website out there. Yeah. Sure. That's awesome. Thank you. Well, right. yes, I'd love to come back and talk more. I mean, this is the work I do now. Uh, you know, I did a lot of great things in the past. I lost all of that except for the memories. Uh, but now this work I do now is so much more rewarding than anything I've ever done. And I don't, I don't wish it on my worst enemy for anybody to have to go through what I went through, but I, you know, I was able to pull through it, uh, with the grace of God and, and some, you know, determined doggedness, determined, uh, one of the things that really made me doggedly determined to make it through was the suicide of. Uh, my, the Washington State uh, quarterback, Tyler Helinski, back in January oh, yeah. 2018. When he took his life, in the next two or three weeks, everyone's trying to write stories on his life and how great a kid he was. It just resonated with me somehow that um, I didn't want people trying to tell my life story. You know, I wanted to be here to tell my story. And this was right in the midst of my deepest, darkest time as well. Uh, took me to the end of 2018 to finally pull out of it. But I think, you know, and I work with the uh, Helensky's parents, his, his mom and dad and their foundation. I uh, got a chance to meet them and talk with them many times. So that really was the catalyst of saying, wow, shake up, shake it up, James. You can, you can get through this thing. James, uh, you're, you're an all-star in real life. I'm, I'm not doing uh, that. I'm not saying that to make, to, to be funny or anything like that. I'm, I'm serious. That's, what you've gone through, what you're, where you're at, love it. It's fantastic. Yeah, I was going to say, this type of work is extremely valuable. I wish that um, there had been someone like you that was coming to schools that I was at when I was a kid because uh, my family has been directly affected by challenges with mental health, and I have as well. My daughter is acutely uh, affected by this, and I wish that that I had someone who would come and talk about this stuff because it was all just under the rug and, and hush hush. And if you ever went to see someone, you were, you know, you're going to see someone who shrinks heads, you know, it was just such a stigma. So um, having someone with your standing in the community, your background, your, uh, 
legacy, we talked about that a lot longer, your legacy for doing good work in the community, I think is invaluable. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Well, during the pandemic, I wasn't able to get out and speak a lot. Uh, there was no gathering of public folks and all that. Schools weren't allowing it. But hopefully come September, when school opens up again, we're able to travel and freely gather in person. Uh, and that's the work I'll be doing. Um, you know, it's, it's so much needed, especially for our young people. You know, us guys, we've been around a couple few decades now. So we, we kind of know how to deal with the ups and downs of life. But but kids don't know. They they they, yeah. get, they get with that first adversity, and they think it's all over. There's no hope, and they just don't know. And uh, you know, they say that mental health will be our next pandemic we got to deal with. Uh, and they the kids went through it for two and a half years, three years. Uh, it's going to be with them for two or three decades, the rest of their lives. Yeah, what went through the last two years? Yeah, I think so. I think so. All right, we're getting at the end of our show here, but uh, I always like to end the show with a uh, shout out, um, you know, just a little end, end on a little bit of a positive note here. And let's go around the let's go around the virtual room here. Rich, do you have a shout out you'd like to give for this week? Uh, yeah, I'm going to take I'm going to take the easy uh, the low hanging fruit, the easy layup here, and I'm going to do a shout out to my father, Robert Michelson, who has always been in my corner and always. Uh, will be, and uh, other than my wife, is my uh, is my best friend, mm-hmm. and um, instilled a, a love of sports and a love of competition uh, in me from a young age. So I'm I'm very grateful to be his son. Um, James, how about you? Uh, I'm going to do a special shout shout out to uh, Coach Lenny Wilkins. Uh, you know, he's become a dear dear friend. I have breakfast with him every couple of months. Uh, in person, we we catch up, we talk. He was he was on my podcast this morning. Matter of fact, that I do every week, every Saturday morning. Lenny was a special guest, uh, wrapping up the NBA playoffs, the NBA season for us. Uh, he's just he's one of a kind, and um, you know, I, I, I co-dedicated my book to to Coach Wilkins and to Coach Ravling, uh because both of them were like a pair of crutches, you know, one on either side of me helping me walk through that very dangerous, uh, difficult time I went through. So I, I want to give it out to Lenny Wilkins. And if I can do a second shout out, it'd be to George Rafferty. Cool. Uh, you have a podcast. I didn't, I, I wasn't aware of that. Uh, where, where can people find your podcast and what is it called? Well, it's called Standing Above the Crowd, which is the title of my first book I put out 10 years ago. Standing Above the Crowd with James Donaldson. Uh, it's posted up now on Spotify and I hear on Amazon and a couple other places. So it's getting populated all around um, and yeah, getting it up there. So, uh, it's, uh, every Saturday morning at 10 AM, uh, people can call and listen live. And then we have a, a downloadable link, of course, that they could click on and listen to it at their leisure, but 10 AM every Saturday morning, Pacific standard time. Fantastic. All right, and uh, for my shout out, uh, it's gonna, I'm also going to go with my dad, uh, but I but I got a little beef with Rich. Thought I was your best friend, um, <laughs> but anyway, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I really enjoyed this interview with you, Mr. Donaldson, James. Uh, fantastic, fantastic stories you've been telling us. Uh, check us out here on Seattle Sports Union podcast uh, every week, and uh, check out our Twitter at Seattle Sports U as well. Like us on Facebook. We'll see you guys next time. 
All right. Thanks, everyone. Have a great time. Appreciate it so much. All right.